and welcome to the DH Podcast from the University of Oregon. I'm Rachel Rochester. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Constance Crompton, Assistant Professor of Digital Humanities and English in the Department of Critical Studies at UBC Okanagan. Dr. Crompton directs the Humanities Data Lab, which houses projects that engage in the work of the humanities in a digital context. In addition to digital humanities, her research interests include queer history, Victorian visual and popular culture, and I'm not sure quite how to pronounce this, prosa... Prosopography. Oh, and could you tell us a little bit about that? What is that? Certainly, certainly. Uh, it's really great to be on the podcast. I'm, I'm uh, really pleased to be invited. Um, prosopography is uh, a way of dealing with collective biography, you know, to take the little bits of data that we have about people and to build up uh, kind of a typical life or what we can what we can know from the fragmentary data that we have. It's something that was very popular with uh, folks in classics, you know, who might not have the records of the lives of any one particular Roman slave, for example, but had enough fragmentary evidence about various slaves' lives uh, in order to, you know, build up um, a sort of case of what an enslaved person's life might have been like. And it's certainly very popular in the digital humanities where we can actually have lots and lots of data points and, you know, can work now, you know, kind of uh, on the best way to responsibly responsibly represent uh, real lives digitally. Wonderful. What an architectural model. I love it. And code as a representative medium. Dr. Crompton is also co-director of the Lesbian and Gay Liberation in Canada Project and a researcher with Implementing New Knowledge Environments. Her work has appeared in a number of edited collections and the Victorian Review, 19th Century Gender Studies, Digital Humanities Quarterly, the UBC Law Review, and Digital Studies Champ Numérique. Today she joins us to speak a bit about breaking into digital humanities, no matter your level of previous experience, academic rank, or technological expertise. Please join me in welcoming Constance Crompton. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. <laughs> um, I suppose it makes sense to start with a little of your personal history. So I was wondering, how did you get started in DH? Uh, what was your entry point? Oh, do you know what? I was very fortunate in that uh, I was working on a PhD in Victorian studies and had the opportunity to uh, um, at first volunteer and then be hired onto a digital humanities project. Um, I was really uh, interested in uh, late 19th century uh, gender culture and fantasy print culture and was working with Lorraine Jansen Koistra uh, at Ryerson University. And you know, if she had been working on a book project, you know, I would have like volunteered for that if she had been working on a project that involved like archival research or at this point like even like, oh, like filing her papers and stapling. <laughs> I would have volunteered for that because I really, I really wanted to work with her, her work with them. Um, uh, visual culture and periodicals uh, really sort of drew me in. And as it happened, she was working on a digital project, uh, the 1890s uh, online, and she was digitizing the Yellow Book, which is a seminal um, work uh, in the fantasy act uh, that really promoted decadent culture uh, and, um, you know, that I don't know, all of Oscar Wilde's friends used to write for. And so I got involved with the project because I really love the Victorian studies content. Uh, and didn't know that I would actually really love the technical angle uh, as well. And so um, it was, I came in through the, the, the humanity side and then really got to love the, the DH side of things as well. Uh-huh. So for any graduate students who might not have such an opportune project to jump on board with, do you have any advice for how they might get started in DH if they're interested but don't know quite where to begin? 
Do you know what I super recommend to anyone uh, volunteering on other people's projects? I think, you know, quite often um, in the traditional liberal arts, we're encouraged to be sort of solo scholars, to work, you know, alone in the archives. And, and you know, increasingly there's a, a move towards uh, collaborative models. And I find working on someone else's project is actually a really helpful way to see how large projects are run, to see how tasks are divided up amongst sort of various folks, um, that no one person can be the cook, the bottle washer, the maitre d', you know, for the whole project. Uh, and uh, one of the, the side benefits, if you're a grad student that comes with working on someone else's project, is that, you know, if that project has pitfalls, you can learn from watching those pitfalls, uh, you know, and, and how they're paved over um, firsthand, rather than making uh, you know, those kind of errors on your uh, own individual first project. That is a very good point. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, it's like tempting to rush in and think like, oh, I'm going to be the guy on my own project who like, you know, writes the grad, grant application, who does all of the, you know, encoding and I'll develop all the digital skills myself and uh, has all the content expertise. I think, you know, try to join a project where you can work on one of those skill sets and then build up from there. Excellent. I think that's great advice. Um, for academics who are seeking a tenure track job or are perhaps seeking tenure, DH can be a little intimidating because there isn't a clear roadmap for making DH count toward tenure. So I know this is an ongoing discussion in DH circles, but I'm hoping that you might weigh in a little bit. How is DH work evaluated since it breaks the mold of the standard academic article? Certainly, certainly. You know, I think it's really been uh, a kind of a challenge for the, the scholarly community to come up with ways to think about the digital artifacts that uh, GH scholars are, are producing um, uh, and to sort of see their equivalents in the uh, more sort of traditional uh, academic knowledge dissemination um, uh, exercises. There are some great places to start. And for folks who are working on digital projects, great places to point your chair, your head, your supervisor uh, to uh, in order to help uh, start the conversation. If you're working in English, uh, it's good to head over to the MLA's guidelines for evaluating digital scholarship um, because that's a place that either your supervisor or uh, the chair of your department will be looking uh, in order to evaluate your work. So, you know, look at, at the principles there and make sure that the work that you're doing kind of perhaps fits into that model. Uh, the Association for Computing and Humanities in the United States and the Canadian Society for Digital Humanities in Canada have also adopted guidelines for evaluating digital work, whether that's producing tools so that other people can do uh, really fabulous like text analysis stuff, or uh, whether that means you know building your own database or um, uh, doing your your own analysis. Uh, that there are guidelines there too that will help other people evaluate your work. So you can point people to those guidelines and then use the guidelines yourself to plan out your own project to make sure that you're uh, that you're meeting those standards of scholarship uh, in the field. Yeah, I can imagine that could be really helpful for people who are just getting started too, to sort of give them a roadmap since this is really an, an ongoing and developing field. I think that can be intimidating too, not having the models that you necessarily want to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the people who come to us and are interested in the digital humanities already have tenure in their respective fields, but now find themselves interested in the digital humanities. Do you have any advice for them? You know, if you're already well established in your field, is there a particular route to take to begin practicing DH? 
Oh, certainly. I think actually one of the most important things to remember, especially if you already have uh, tenure, is that you know on any sort of larger digital humanities project, again, like no one person is going to be able to do the entire uh, project. You're not going to be the content expert as well as the you know person who perhaps is doing um, you know server administration, as well as the person who is doing the they're designing the architecture of an, a, a, a database, for example. Uh, that said. I think especially for folks who are going to be the PI on a project, uh, it's really helpful to understand how all the various members of your team uh, are going to work together. And so that's where training can really come in handy. Um, I'm the uh, Associate Director of the Digital Humanities Summer Institute, which runs uh, week-long courses at the University of Victoria every year and uh, lots of workshops uh, both in Canada and the United States. Here's where I'll put in a plug if there's anyone who's going to be in uh, Toronto at the end of May. Uh, feel free to join us for some two and a half hour workshops that sort of introduce people to some digital humanities skills. Uh, the DHSI website has lots of info. Uh, but that I recommend the PIs get their feet wet in the various areas that um, that other folks are going to take up on their projects, you know, that grad students might be working on, or even that developers at the university might be working on, so that you can have a, a you know, meaningful conversation with these folks about the work that they're doing, so that you all have a shared vocabulary. Because I think something uh, a PI who already has tenure can really bring is uh, uh, that content expertise, and uh, and then a little bit of training will increase sort of can increase technical knowledge in order to have those meaningful conversations with folks who are maybe doing some more of the hands-on uh, tech work. Excellent. Um, so I keep hearing you talk about collaboration and that's one of the one of the real benefits of digital humanities work. But I know when I started working in the digital humanities, I had no idea how to meet people uh, with different levels of te technological skill, you know, people outside of my department, people with different interests. Um, and I just sort of found my way as I, as I went. But I'm wondering, do you have any suggestions for how people might begin to sort of network outside their departments and find people with whom they might collaborate on these projects? Certainly, certainly. Um, there are sort of online resources to help people get to know one another. Uh, I know DH Commons, for example, has uh, an entire database where folks can uh, enter their skills and what they're willing to contribute to projects, um, as well as um, uh, a place where you can kind of go and say, I'm looking for someone who has these kinds of skills. Would you be interested in working uh, together? Um, there's also the Haystack uh, website, which is a great uh, resource uh, for for folks to sort of meet one another and to, to read blogs uh, and postings from various folks around the world about what they're they're doing with their projects. That said, I actually recommend getting together with people in person. And whether that means like, you know, starting a brown bag lunch group, you know, at one's own university or going to uh, local, national, international conferences or going to workshop series. Uh, that I think it's easiest for people to collaborate with one another when they know each other, you know, and it's really, it can be really kind of challenging to start up um, a, you know, long-term research relationship uh, just sort of using the internet or, or just sort of, you know, cold emailing um, people. So I do recommend sort of going to conferences, maybe even asking if, you know, conferences will, in your field, will add like a DH breakout lunch session, you know, for 
grad students and faculty and librarians and staff members to meet with one another uh, just to sort of say like, oh yeah, okay, we're, we all live in, you know, sort of the Cascadia region, for example, and we're all interested in Victorian studies. And actually, we'd also like to, to work with other folks on DH, like let's get together and sort of talk it through. Also, uh, my advice for folks who are kind of starting out, maybe that is different than the advice I would give to somebody who is, um, uh, you know, who already has tenure, is that there's an opportunity for you, if you have the time, uh, that I think a lot of tenured folks don't have, uh, to develop the digital skills yourself. And so there too, I mean, I recommend going to workshops as part of a way of building community so that you're kind of not alone. You have, you know, folks from your course to like email if you find that you go back home and you're stubbing your toes and, and still trying to figure stuff <laughs> out. Um, I also actually really recommend online resources like Code Academy, um, uh, and even paying for access to resources like those at lynda.com uh, that can tell you all sorts of things that you, you might want to know. And even that there are those things to know, like uh, uh, learning to talk to your computer using the command line or uh, learning about the history and structure of databases, for example, uh, or how topic modeling works that can really kind of help you out. I think that's great advice. It, it can be really intimidating for people, but in talking to some of the computer scientists at our university, one of the things we found is that a lot of DH projects, and this is certainly not all DH projects, but a lot of DH projects aren't particularly exciting intellectually for computer scientists. Um, building a database is you know, kind of computer science 101, and so it's a little bit trickier sometimes to get uh, computer scientists to collaborate on those projects if they aren't doing anything innovative in their field too. Um, and so it, it's really good advice for humanists to learn some of these technological skills on their own so that they aren't relying on people who might not be as excited about their research as they are. Indeed, indeed. It can be a great like firm foundation for meaningful conversation with collaborators in um, uh, in in, in uh, fields like computer science. So, you know, once folks have said like, oh, well, you've got databases down already or you've got the you know, um, how topic modeling works down. Like, let's talk about that next level together now that, you know, you've gone off and, and developed those skills in advance. Yeah, and it, it might lead DH projects to be more innovative in multiple directions, you know? Once you have that foundation, you can kind of imagine what the what the cutting edge would look like. Yes, indeed. I mean, I think there there's a bit of a difference between, you know, starting out in DH uh, and, you know, how to kind of get your feet wet and get going and uh, the kind of research that folks are interested in you know, once perhaps they have like DH on their door or, you know, once there's a dedicated DH lab space in which people might then be doing um, research into uh, more cutting edge technology or like new sort of frontiers and how those new computational frontiers can uh, support uh, humanities research or how humanities research can inform new directions. Uh, with that sort of research. So there's a lot of uh, work going on, I know now, with, you know, mass digitization or um, uh, working computationally with, you know, ways to get computers to recognize, uh, you know, 17th century typeface, which, you know, <laughs> isn't something that has origin from, risen from the commercial world for us, but that is meaningful to, you know, humanities scholars. Um, uh, uh, and those, those kind of questions become ones for folks who are, like, doing DH hardcore full-time as they're um, as their their career sort of once they're past the the getting started stage. Right, absolutely. Um, here in the U.S., we've spent this week grappling with proposed federal budget cuts that eliminate the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Arts. 
And although that makes it feel a little bit more urgent here, a lack of funding for humanities research isn't a particularly novel problem. As we look forward and try to imagine what the humanities must do to preserve itself, what do you think digital humanities means for the future of the field more generally? You know, is, is the digital a way to bring attention to the humanities in the modern era? I must say, you know, I'm, I'm not above uh, using, uh, you know, sort of some of the rhetoric of the, you know, the digital being, uh, you know, cutting edge, even though, of course, it's, uh, you know, humanities research can also be cutting edge in order to attract folks who may not already, uh, uh, you know, understand the, the mission of, you know, the humanities. If, if the humanities, you know, is involved in uh, grappling with and better understanding the human record, then I think like that is valuable in and of itself without, you know, any kind of digital intervention. But if we can use the digital to, to bring people into the conversation, then that's a useful, a useful thing. I must say, uh, there are lots of us here in Canada who just spent uh, part of this week like dry heaving over the the news of the defunding of um, uh, of the NEH uh, and of the institutes that support um, uh, library and museum work uh, as well as the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. So uh, certainly we're, we're all sort of very anxious about the memory institutions in the United States. What will this mean, you know, even for the Library of Congress uh, that has done such good work in terms of actually creating some of the digital standards that many of us rely on, um, as well as preserving the material artifacts uh, that, that make up humanities, uh, that, make the, the, that are the sort of the baseline of the material for the humanities and um, uh, and that, that certainly preserve um, our cultural history. Yes. It's scary times. Yeah. It is. So, yeah, and it's certainly not something that will just affect our citizens here in the U.S. So it's been a frustrating week, but luckily I guess we can look at digital humanities as maybe a, a way to keep moving forward and stay positive. We'll see. Yeah, <laughs> time will tell. And that's something, too, that I would say to folks who are starting out, uh, starting digital humanities projects is that uh, it it can be you know a little bit daunting getting started but it's important that the work that folks do um, has a long time a long-term archival strategy you know for folks who um, you know are writing books for example you know the libraries are prepared to take those monographs and to preserve them so that that cultural knowledge and the new knowledge that's being produced in the humanities is saved and in that way um, and that that pathway isn't always so clear with DH projects, especially things that are web-based. Um, so you know, there are all sorts of fabulous DH projects in the 1990s uh, that recovered, uh, you know, sort of lost voices, things that the publishers couldn't afford to publish, uh, you know, the narratives um, of enslaved people, uh, you know, gay and lesbian voices from earlier in the century, and made those texts available um, online, but then that lost their funding and, and you know, then those sites disappear. And so I think for folks who are starting projects, it's important to go to your library early and often and say, you know, how can we build this project in a way that will be archivable um, in the library? And, and even getting, you know, a librarian on to a project team um, is a good way to make sure that your data will be safe, especially if some of the um, other institutional measures and groups that might otherwise archive those things are, are currently falling on harder financial times. Yeah, that's the thing we've been thinking about a lot here at the University of Oregon lately. We just had a, a data refuge event. I don't know if you've heard about that movement. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, people are trying to preserve particularly climate data and government 
research that's been housed in government databases um, for fear that that those websites will be removed and that data will be less accessible. And that's been a really interesting, complex problem to figure out how to mine and preserve that data. Um, it, it's been it's been interesting purely from a technological vantage to try to figure out how we how we go ahead and get and preserve that information. Indeed. Yeah. Excellent. Well, is there anything that you would like to add before we sign off? No, I think this was uh, delightful. I'm, I'm really excited to hear about all of the new initiatives that are getting started at the University of Oregon and uh, was just delighted to be asked to come in and, and chat with you guys. Um, I will uh, certainly subscribe to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks. Take care. Bye.